And there is an ego with that. Don't get me wrong. In rugby, the phrase that I've used is commit to the system, but adjust to the picture. We don't want to make um, high performance sport a graveyard for young people. Confidence is that I have utter belief in my ability and how great I could be. Arrogance is I need you to acknowledge that. So my equation for high performance is. How do people at the top of the game do what they do? And what can young players learn from them to help them on their own journey and help them achieve their dreams in the game? That's the question and this podcast will give you the answers. Welcome to today's episode of the Offfield Rugby Pod. I'm your host, Brian Moylet, former Irish age grade international, now mindset and performance coach. And if you have not done so, hit that subscribe button so that you never miss another podcast episode. And if you're out there and you love this podcast, please do me a favor and leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. That really helps because the more positive ratings and reviews we get, the more the different platforms say, hey, this podcast is helping people, people are enjoying it. Maybe we should show to people who have never heard of it before. And that way the podcast grows organically. Also, you can send the podcast on some friends and I would greatly appreciate that. Before we get into today's chat, I have an announcement. So for me, a big problem in the game is a lack of mental support that young players get. So like in every single game, you will have players that are sick with anxiety. Others will be feeling so much pressure that it feels like they're being weighed down and some will be going out onto the field with literally no confidence in themselves at all. You often can't see this, sometimes you can, but often players mask it, but this is the reality. You've probably been through these yourself as a player, I certainly have, and you know, it just shouldn't be that way. People always say how the mental side of the game is so crucial, yet we train our skills on the field, we go to the gym to get stronger, but we don't train our minds to become stronger and more resilient. And over the past few years, studying the mind and putting things into practice myself on the field, I've had so many of these aha moments and just sat back and thought geez I wish I knew this when I was younger so anyway 10 months ago I just had the realization that I had to help those young ambitious players who are just like I was 10 12 years ago and I had been doing the Instagram at Offfield Rugby. I've been doing the podcast. And I just knew that I needed to get all this stuff into a book to make it easy for people to learn. And 10 months later, I published the book this week. It's titled The Book on How You Become a Pro Rugby Player and is available on Amazon. 
The foreword is written by my friend and old teammate Robbie Henshaw, Leinster and Ireland player. He gives brilliant insights in the book. And yeah, I'm really proud of it and delighted to have it out there now because you can now get answers and learn strategies and frameworks that will help you overcome all these mental challenges that you face all the time as a player. Today's guest on the pod is Aaron Walsh, who is a top mental performance coach. He works with the Chiefs in Super Rugby, works in cricket, baseball, and has just signed with Scotland for a year leading into next year's Rugby World Cup. So congrats to him for that. That's class. We get into so much in this one. You'll learn how to relieve stress on the field how to become more present, and he talks about his formula for high performance. We chat about how you overcome adversity, regulate yourself talk, how you become mentally stronger, and there's lots more. We go on a lot of different sidetracks, and uh, yeah, really enjoyed this chat. Please send it on to a friend, and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast wherever you're listening. So here's episode number 66 with Aaron Walsh. Dealing with money can be very stressful and especially with everything that's happening in the world right now and stock markets crashing. If you're not an expert, it can be difficult to know what to do. Sparks Wealth is an Irish financial planner and they are experts when it comes to dealing with finances and helping guide you on what's best for your situation. You can book a free call with Will now at Sparks Wealth on their website, sparkswealth.ie. Recently, a family member of mine did just that and was so happy they did so. They said Will guided them through everything in a simple, easy to understand way, no jargon, and it was a brilliant experience. So that's sparkswealth.ie. So how did you get started in the mental skills space? Um, it was, yeah, I've... I think I've, I've mentioned it before, but I have quite an unconventional journey. So I didn't go through the typical psychology sort of way of doing things like I never studied psychology, but I've always been involved with sports and probably high performance sports since about 18. So, um, and I was recognizing, you know, when I, when we went to America, I got involved with baseball. That's another, a long story, but basically um, it sort of went back to this, uh, sort of pivotal moment and I've shared it a few times but I think it's important to for me to always revisit I was at a spring training must have been you know 2004 or five around that sort of period of time and I was looking um, over the minor league uh, field so minor league complex is probably 200 athletes I think at that point so it's a crazy number um, and I was talking to one of the coaches and I asked him uh, how many of these kids make it to the big leagues and um, at that point I think the draft rate was about three percent so like three percent of people you draft end up making it and um, so you know one of the things obviously that hit me back then which I I sort of thought about but didn't really consider much is well what are we doing for the other 97 um, because chances are they'll never fulfill what they hope to when they you know were part of a professional baseball um, that's a whole nother whole another thing to look at. But then I said, all, you know, I look across the field, I see everybody looks the same. They're all really, you know, well put together athletes. They seem all very skillful, but they all throw hard and they all hit the ball a long way. 
um, what's the difference? And um, it was sort of a throwaway comment. He said, oh, it's the top two inches, mate. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, how much work do you do on that? And he said, none. And that was sort of, can you imagine that collision? So it was like this, and I've talked about it a lot through the years. It's what I call the difference between perceived and actualized value. So the perception is we value the mental side of performance. The reality is we don't. And the way we can measure that, I think, is right through time and resources in an environment. So if you think of an environment, go, yeah, the, you know, you, you talk to a coach and a coach will go, oh, the game's 80% mental. And I always go, no, it's not even close to that. Um, and one, if it was that, would you then dedicate 80% of your preparation time to training that aspect of your performance? The answer is no. So one, I think, you know, there is not really a clear um, value from coaches, but I think you can overvalue as, a, as much as undervalue it. I know that sounds strange, but in overvaluing, you almost look at this thing as like, here's a silver bullet. Like if we get this in place and we're going to be this awesome, amazing team. And that's not true whatsoever. It's part of the performance pillars, but it's not the premier uh, performance pillar. And why do you think it is that coaches, by and large, say it's so important, yet, from my understanding of what you're saying there as well, by and large, it doesn't get that, it doesn't have that level of importance when it comes to fitting out a schedule for the week? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's a Pandora's box you open there. I think, firstly, is that um, a lot of coaches don't know where it fits. And so it's easy to say it's really valuable, but then you know, it often can be used as a, a crutch for your underperforming team. Like, hey, we're just not mentally good enough. And so like, you know, a game that I'm involved with probably the most is, is combat sports like rugby or evasive sports. And so rugby league, et cetera. And, um, you know, you have to be physically and technically good before you even have the mental part of it play a massive difference. Like, sort of a phrase I've used over time is you can't outthink a bad body or poor, poor skill. And so, you know, like you think is for most athletes, they have three things that makes them good is their body, their craft and their mind. And the first two uh, to answer your question is real easy to train. Like you think about that, like, okay, how do you get your body better? Okay. Well, you eat properly, you do the right training protocol and you're going to improve your physical, um, composition and then also your physical ability like how do you get your craft better well you know the areas of your game you need to work on you can have drills and things like that to help do that and then you get to the mental side and you know part of my sort of attempt to sort of to challenge the current way it's been done is to go we are way too philosophical and not enough like a tradesman so that's sort of where I see it being really important is that we can't just have these ideas and research and theories around what happens to people under pressure. We've got to actually have practices and tools and habits that enable them to navigate through pressure. And I think in large, the, the sports white world has been way too much on the philosophical side and not enough on the practical side. And so then even if someone could recognize that it's a really important part of performance, what do you do to train it? And how do you then improve someone mentally to perform better under pressure and without those tools and practices and approaching it like a skill um then it's just going to remain where it is yeah 100 percent, great points and i've had that 
twice or three times young players reaching out to me on Instagram and saying like, oh, I can understand that it's really clear, but I follow this other thing and it's always really mm -hmm. complicated. And that's something I found as well when I was young. It was like, yeah. I was somewhat interested in this, but it was just too tech yeah. complicated for me to even look at. Yeah, and I, and I think it doesn't have to be. So like what sport have you been involved with the most in your life? Rugby. Okay, so this is an easy question then. So what does a mentally proficient rugby player do well? What do they do well? Yeah, like if you look at they, someone and go, man, they're mentally really good. What is it that they do well? They play well throughout the 80 minutes, regardless yep. of what has happened or is happening, that they're, you know, whether they're losing, winning, made mistakes or whatever's happening, they, they seem to stay at a high level of performance. So I love that this is so simple. So they're, they're consistent, they stay present, they make yeah. good decisions. So the game gives you clues of what's required to be good at it mentally. And I think that's where we overcomplicate it. Instead of going to the game to offer the clues of what we should be training, we go to a book. Mm. And a book might say, here's nine traits of mentally strong athletes, or you know, here's nine traits of high performers. And we go, well, great, but does our sport demand that? And so, you know, I divide sports into three categories. So you have one, you have your endurance sports. So they have a whole bunch of mental skills associated with that, that you need to be able to develop, which is a lot around, you know, resilience and being able to continue through pain and, you know, all of that sort of stuff to deal with the inner voice. And how do you, like, I just watched yesterday, the Ironman out of Kona, Hawaii, World Ironman champs. And, you know, this guy won it in under eight hours and, <laughs> I, I would have loved to have a, have a uh, recording as in a voice. Imagine that for what that would have been really interesting, eh? To see what they were going through, what they talk about, how they how their self talk changes throughout a race, and so that's skills to me. That's skills. Um, then you have sports where you initiate movement, so you have sports like your golf and um, probably a tennis serve and rugby. There's a couple of activities, so line out throw and goal kickers. And that requires a whole different set of mental skills because they'll be more about your process and um, dealing with the, um, that gap between, you know, uh, when you get given the ball and then you have to perform your skill. Like there's always a gap. Um, it's not reactive. You have to initiate the movement. So therefore there's room for all sorts of things to go on, um, which we've seen with line out throwers and goal kickers get the yips if you want to use that term is because they haven't managed that external voice in that moment and how to deal with it and then you get sports the major part like of rugby football um, I suppose sports like hockey um, basketball would be you respond to movement a lot so you're not you're not actually thinking through the activity you're more hoping that you've done and so the, the you'd force on that would be really good preparation great decision making how do you learn well what pitches do you need to see um, can, can you learn from the past pitches that you have seen, you know, it's like something like good, good decision makers are the product of a whole lot of bad decisions often, aren't they? Mm. You know, like they've learned from bad decisions over time. They become good. That, that's a mental skill. What you learn, you, you're a good learner. You're, you can adjust, you can grow. So, you know, even within that framework there, you can see that there's multiple different skills. And to me, I very much think of it like your body, like, 
a rugby player trains his body different from a cricketer, from a golfer, you know, from a triathlete. Why? Because the demands of the sport require that they do that. And I just don't know why we don't approach that from the mental aspect very often. I love, yeah, I love the way you break down those three. And one thing interesting with the inner voice one and the kind of endurance and obviously towards the end of a rugby game that comes in, you know, 70 minutes, 75 minutes in and something, another thing with training the mind for it, but something I found interesting, I work in a university now, coaching university, and there's a lot of, is it safe sport? They call it about like not about pushing people and about, you know, when is it a, a coach being, I don't know what the words are, but like, I don't know if abusive is the right word or whatever, but I'm flogging people. And it's something that I remember when I was younger training, just loving that battle with the inner voice that like, I'm not going to give up, you know, and like, no matter what, I'm not going to give up and just going and going and going. And um, I don't know, is there a balance there with like training people to point of breaking so that they can get close to that inner voice and learn yeah. how to deal yeah, with it's it? It's an interesting one, isn't it? I, we know that one of the most underrated enhancers of our personal well-being is the ability to overcome adversity. So this is part of my frustration with some of the modern well-being initiatives is that we try to um, insulate people from adversity, whereas we should be giving them the tools to overcome adversity because when you do hard things and you overcome them, man, that enhances your well-being massively. So I don't think the, the it's quite positioned right, like, like, there's a difference between a coach being an absolute prick and hostile and treating people with disrespect versus we're going to challenge you today and we're going to help you navigate through this challenge. And if you navigate through this challenge, it's actually going to be a massive enhancer of your well-being, not detrimental to your well-being. Um, and so I think it's the way that we see it. Like it's all about, you know, like the days of yelling someone up a mountain are over, aren't they? Like, we know that from our research, we know from practice, we know from feedback that that doesn't work. Um, may work for one or two individuals, but it doesn't work for a collective. And so then we still need people to do difficult things. This is where the, I think the well-being stuff can get a little bit cloudy for me, like personally, like you're a professional athlete or you're trying to be at your best regardless of that. You're going to have to do some really hard things that you don't like. And we're going to have to help you get through those. So to me, to take out um, the element of adversity in the name of well-being doesn't make sense from my perspective. Yeah, I fully agree. Like you, you have to get into those dark places essentially. And like, yeah. you know, like I remember, yeah, just training to a point where you feel like you're going to collapse, but you keep going yeah. and it, and it, it, it was so good for me. Yeah. And, and you think about it, like at the end of a session like that, you know, you look at the man in the mirror and you're proud. Like, how does that not enhance your well-being? Like, I don't get why we would want to shelter people from that. A hundred percent. You start to feel like a savage. You feel like an animal. And then you, you know what yeah. you're capable of. Yeah. And you can do it without being mean and you can do it without being, um, without embarrassing people. And you can do it without exposing people and singling out people. And like, you can do all of that, you know, really hard work. But I think sometimes we have got the, you know, the SAS or the, you know, special forces model in our mind when we think about doing hard things. And so someone over your shoulder yelling at you, calling you all sorts of things. Like, 
that's not really in my experience like i that's not professional sports at all so maybe it's an archaic perspective of what something is or isn't that you know has now probably had the pendulum swing the other way where where there are coaches who are probably scared of um, placing demands on athletes um you know and it's interesting i don't know if you've read it like there's a big discussion now over concussion and safety in our sport and you know i read a thing that um i think it's john smith who's a you know ex-south african captain wrote and i think you know bucky's author which I, those two might not always be the best examples but they basically were saying we signed up knowing that our bodies were going to be at risk and that injury was a part of a game and and i get that what they don't sign up for is reckless behavior you know compromising their long-term health but i think it's a bit like that with our well-being like we don't want to make um high performance sport a graveyard for young people we don't want that whatsoever but i do think we need to also be really clear like this is hard and it's it's not for everyone and it's real difficult and there is a line between abuse and us demanding that you get the best out of yourself and i think that line's rather clear to be honest i don't think it's that murky at all yeah a hundred percent and uh yeah you said it there is like it is hard and it's demanding and not everyone makes it and like i don't know you know you've probably heard this as well of um a generation of everyone getting a gold star or everyone getting a ribbon mm. and it's something i work with players who are one below the professional level we'll say and uh you know i find it sometimes coaching teams that people expect and i'll tell you one quick one one quick story this player said oh i, I want to be here i want to get in the team i this i want this more than anything i i'm willing to do anything and i said i'm listening i'm like okay great like this is exactly what i want to hear from a player and then i said okay well you know her you see how hard she works if you work harder than her you'll get there and she said well i'm never going to be able to work that hard Mm -hmm. and it's just that that sense of you know like as you said it's a bit like like i've been i think what what they i think what the athletes are most saying is just care for the person as much as you care for the performer and i think if we got that right then we get that balance right like so you know like and i think a common example is in some of our olympic sports over here where there's been reviews and investigations and you know i think it's happening everywhere in the world i'm reading about it most weeks is that the complaints of the athletes was is that we didn't feel valued as people Mm. like we felt valuable when you're in your in your program and that we were performing but soon as that didn't happen then all of a sudden we're neglected and thrown out the back door and we've been given nothing to move our lives onward and you think about that baseball story from the start right so what do we do with the other 97 percent you know, the least we can do is make sure that we give them some tools for life, right? So they come out of that three to five year experience, might not have fulfilled their dream, but are really well equipped to be really successful at life. Mm, 100%. And what are your thoughts on, say, going all in, being 100% all in when 97% don't make it? You just don't know until you give it a shot, can't you? Like, you're not going to make it if you're 90%. And so, I mean, you just got to go. You know, it's like, there's a great story that um, it's not, was sport with a mountaineering with Sir Edmund Hillary. And um, of course, we know Sir Ed well from our history. And 
he was told that there is no guarantee that your supplemental oxygen will be enough for you after 28,500 feet. Like we, we know that it works up to them, but after that, we don't know. So the name, the death zone literally came from that concept, but Everest is 29,000 feet. And so I know Sir Ed would have had a choice at some point to go, do I stop or do I keep going? And like he, what, what he was putting at risk was much more than any of us put at risk. It was his own life. But you can imagine probably there's this inner dialogue as saying, you know, I would rather fail from courage than succeed from fear. You know, that's how I imagine. And, you know, like it, it's it, the thing about being all in, it takes tremendous amount of courage because there's nowhere to hide if you don't make it. So it's easier, like, you know, I talk about it when I, you know, work with athletes, talk about front loading a lot. And so many athletes front load with excuses before performance so they can avoid judgment and it justifies underperforming. And so it's actually so courageous to go, listen, I'm all in and my all in is everything. And if it's not enough, I can still look at the man and all the woman in the mirror and be proud of that rather than always have a 5% in reserve that I hold as something that I'm not quite able to give, but it allows me to get off the hot seat of actually wondering whether I'm good enough or not. And that's yeah. a hard world to live in. Yeah, 100%. I, fully, I couldn't agree more. And I think that like the plan B, having a backup plan, it kills you because you're given energy towards it. And it's like you say, it's, um, it's giving yourself a way to fail. Whereas when you take away that, that option to fail and you have no option but to fail, the strength and the focus and the energy you get towards the plan A is incredible. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever watched Shark Tank, which is like those. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that you learn from that is that they'll never invest into an entrepreneur who already has a job. Like they're like, no, quit your job, do this full time, and then we'll invest into you because we just don't believe you'll be all in if you have other options. Now, you know, we have to we have to work through that with it's a case by case. Um, but you know, I think, you know, I know lots of uh, lots of athletes who have been all in, didn't make it, love the experience, learn a ton. 25 26 life's not over and i think there's a bit of a myth there maybe that hey you've got to get all this stuff behind you because at 25 26 if you have if you've got nothing but your professional sports experience you're behind i don't think they're behind at all i think they're probably ahead 100 percent. i couldn't agree more and that's exactly what i heard and and something that and that, that held me back i think is people saying mm. like oh keep one eye on the career you know the rugby won't last forever yeah. you know you, you know what if you get injured and and i i did keep one eye on both and to my detriment and then i remember i have a younger brother and i remember saying to him no go after it just go after yeah. it. you know get a degree along the way because you're yeah. he, he's intelligent enough to do that you know but but don't be thinking about getting a job don't yeah. be yeah. And, and what I think we confuse it with, which I think we do a much better job, there's a difference between um, the discussion around your career and then the discussion around your identity. And I think they're two different conversations. So a, a discussion around your career might be, hey, I'm comfortable at 25. If I don't make it, I'm going to give this five years shot to start uni. And, you know, I might have to live with mum and dad and might be a bit, you know, on the bones of my bum, but so be it. That's, that's a different discussion to 
I ended the game at 25. I didn't find out who I was outside of rugby. And when you took rugby away, I had nothing. Now that's a dangerous space to live, but it's not the same conversation of whether you should choose pursuing a sport over pursuing a career. This is around your identity, which is completely different discussion. And I think we've confused those at points and we've watched people who have come out of the back end of their careers with no sense of identity outside of the sport. And then they equate that with they weren't, they didn't have good career planning. No, it had nothing to do with career planning. It was more what, how they viewed themselves and the sport they played and their inability to separate the person and the performer. And then when you took the thing away that had way too much um, attachment to their own personal identity and well-being and sense of self-esteem, then of course they were going to be lost. But that's not because they had bad career options. Mm, fully Completely agree. Different. Yeah, because anybody retiring from rugby at 25 or 35 who, who's given it everything and who's been involved in a high-performance environment, they don't have nothing. They have so much. Yeah. Like, they have so ma- many yeah. skills, so many ex- so much experience compared, compared to many other people those ages, you know? So... Yeah. But when you wake up in the morning and if you've sort of gone through the lens of, uh, you know, what's my purpose in life? What makes me successful? What makes me feel proud of myself? And you've answered every one of them by your sport. Then you take that away. That's where the danger, I think, begins to happen. Yeah. And how do you help players with uh, their identity and, and being other than a rugby player? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the way I've described it is that... Um, rugby doesn't define your identity okay but it's the canvas that you have at this part of your life to express it so so you have to do if you don't have if you haven't done your own personal identity work then the vacuum of what that vacuum will be filled with whatever you're involved with so whether you're doing real estate or whether you know you're a doctor it doesn't matter like whatever you're involved with will fill that that vacuum if you haven't done your own work and so you know, I'll often ask them to do a bit of their own work around, well, who are you, you know, and what does it mean to be like, you know, it's sort of the process I go with is know yourself, be yourself, stay yourself, you know, that's, so if you know who you are, what does that look like on a field and how do you maintain authenticity to that? So, so the, the, the sport should just be an extension of our identity, not the place that we grab our identity. And then sort of to monitor that, I would look at three things for a player like post-performance, like 24 hours after a game is your mood, self-esteem and relationships impacted by your performance. And if the answer is yes, then we got to have a chat because you got way too much um, power associated with too much attachment to the sport and to who you are as an athlete that's dominating way too much of how you view yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the identity is so important. And to be honest, something I learned a lot about myself when I went through a tough time and thought I'd stop playing with injuries. But I think a big part of it as well growing up is that you're forced to not express your identity when you're playing. So when I when I yeah, was yeah. anyway, when I was growing up in different rep environments, like you couldn't, you know, if you wore a certain color boots, you'd get you'd get mm-hmm. sledged if you like i see now one or two super Thank God, those days are over 
Yeah, but I see. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know his name, but uh, like a super rugby player who paints his nails, and then other guys with. Oh, Naitoa, who plays for us, Chief. Yeah, 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 and like other yeah. people with color in their hair and different things, yeah. and they're expressing their identity. So you know, it's something that when you're talking there, like when I was growing up, you weren't able to express any part of your identity. You had to just conform. That's the way I felt anyway, or what I found. And so then you're conforming all the time and Mm -hmm. you kind of don't know who you are, or maybe you have an idea, but you, you don't become aware of that. So then that's an issue. I think it's a challenge. Isn't there a fine line between expression and narcissism? I think there's quite a fine line between that. And I think that's an internal conversation, you know, like, I can understand it from a from a collective. So we have a collective identity as a team, right? And then you have individuals who need to express their own identity within that collective space. But the collective should always override the individual, you know, for teams to be healthy. So what I mean by that is, is that we understand that there are certain behaviors and expectations in any environment we're in. And we respect that environment enough not to, to be someone we're not, but to be able to um, have a, I suppose, what would be the word, have a filter through which we express ourselves through. And so, you know, like you put yourself into a male-dominated rugby environment and then you might go, like, like I have in the past, I've gone my wife to a cooking school. Now, I can express my authenticity in both of those settings, but it's going to look different. And so I think that's the wisdom aspect of it. Like it's not, I think sometimes we confuse it. We just express ourselves equal. We can do what we want, but you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a dad and a husband and a son and a brother. I have to consider all of the impact of my expression on those relationships to make sure that in the name of personal autonomy, I'm not damaging the collective, right? So there is a real way we have to work through that. Because if we just said, everyone do what you want when you want to express yourself and you don't have collective values, then we have no alignment, we have no unity. And it's just a, um, you know, it's Lord of the Flies, basically. Yeah. So it's probably finding that. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, with like wearing gear, you know, like wearing the right stuff, showing up on yeah. time, all that. Yeah. Like, and, and so you go through, do you go through kind of what, uh, like kind of not terms or different things that, that show that you're staying in line with the group yeah i mean i think we all have our have our standards which are all the standards are uh, the um ability to translate our values into actions that's all they are so we can have a way to measure if we're being authentic you know like if we say you know one of our values is we want to play with freedom and we find out we kick 80 percent of our ball away then we go well those behaviors don't line up with our values so we're going to have to change our behaviors so i think behaviors or standards or whatever it is are critical to one bring alignment so everybody understands how we can walk together because imagine trying to herd 36 or 38 young men you got to have something some guidelines okay we turn up at this time we wear this we and that's not um taking away anybody's individual freedom it's putting um a it's almost like putting a break on the idea that individual freedom equals i do what i want individual freedom can only be expressed um healthily within the context of community right and so we don't try to say you just go do what you want you know you 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 express who you are but here's the boundary here's the boundary you know like 
this is what we're trying to do together. So the moment your individual freedom compromises the collective goal, then your belonging to the group is compromised. Mm. Yeah, so that's why it's important we have standards. Yeah. You give yeah, you give people the parameters by which to express yeah. themselves, but yeah, they understand the parameters. Yep. Yeah. And most people who, particularly in the world that we live in with high performance sport, they get that. Yeah. So they get the idea like I guess can't go and drink three nights a week in the name of freedom and wear what I want and show up late. Like yeah, you can do that, but you won't last here. So yeah. they understand. Everybody understands. Every every place of community that we have, every team that we're a part of has to have collective standards and ideals and values to be able to be effective in the way that they function together. Mm. What's the biggest challenge that players come to you with or say the most common? I think just the fear of being judged. Yeah. I still think that's the probably the premier one of, of all of our experience. So going back to our, you know, we're talking before about Owen Eastwood and belonging. He sort of, um, you know, really does a masterful job of unpacking why belonging is central to the human experience. Right. And so, and then the antithesis of belonging is isolation or rejection or separation, whatever term you want to use for that. So, you know, when someone plays their judgment, someone's going to make a judgment call over their performance and that judgment could result in them being isolated from the group. So always joke like our players are more nervous before a Bronco than they are before a super rugby final. Like if they got to do testing, like a yo-yo test or a Bronco test or like they tend to be more nervous about that than they are about playing and, you know, playing the biggest games. And I think what it is, is that at the end of the day, a test you can't hide from a, like just it is what it is and you will, the number is the number. And so it either tells you whether you're good enough or not good enough, whether you've done the work or haven't done the work. And also people recognize that not doing well on those tests could have potential impact over whether I belong to this group or not. Um, because, you know, I think we all understand the teams that we function in don't have unconditional belonging, even though we'd love to say that we like these terms like family, which is just not a right term for our work. It's family is probably our immediate family, whether we like it or not, is probably where we do have an unconditional belonging. Like there's probably nothing I can do that would compromise my relationship with my family. Like they could say, you're an idiot and you need to do a, but at the end of the day, it's my place of, I walk in, you know, tonight at the end of my day, whether I performed or not at work doesn't affect my sense of belonging to my family. Now in sports, whether you perform or not is why you belong, <laughs> you know, like, or, mm. no, that's the wrong way of saying it, it was how you belong. So you're there because of your performance. We take your performance away you might not be here anymore because it's not a social club. And I think those things colliding within someone is like, am I going to be good enough? I re it's really important that I belong here. What could, what could create um, isolation and rejection is underperformance. So if I don't perform well, then I don't belong here. You know, in that cascade, I suppose, of thought processes, then, you know, eventuate in someone thinking or someone saying to someone you're not good enough and that's i reckon still the hardest thing for any of us one 
to hear. Like, oh, I'm 46 years old, mate. If someone tells me I'm not good enough, it still hurts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, big time. And uh, great point, sir. And it's, it's a real paradox because the more you worry about those things, the worse you play, the worse you perform. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we talk about it a lot of like, how do we help our athletes, you know, be completely focused on what's in front of them. We know that the best version of anyone is the one that's fully present. Like we know that, right? So the more present you are and I am say in this conversation, the better the conversation is and the more our authenticity shines through. But if I was like massively distracted by the NFL, which I'm not, I'm trying not to be, or, you know, you were distracted by something else, then we know our performance reduces, right? So my equation for high performance is it's capability. So what you're capable of minus interference. And so we know that, you know, for most people, we're increasing capability all the time, but that's what we want to do all the time, increase capability, particularly with younger athletes, right? And once they get near that top of echelon, then we go, okay, we might want to deal a bit more with the interference factors. So we know that something like keeping someone present is how we get the best expression of them, how we, they begin to do that. But what keeps them from that is when this external noise around say consequences or judgment or expectation, whatever it is begins to get loud in their life right and then they begin to at times manipulate their behavior to what they think is needed to belong rather than just trust their authenticity and belong through them then all of a sudden you're managing social and performance issues not just concentrating on what you're trying to do yeah and are there any things in particular that you use to help players to minimize those distractions, we'll say, or the things that get in the way of expressing your full capability? Yeah, I think it depending on um, depending on the situation and depending on the sport. So, like um, a slow, slower moving sport. I've, I've done a lot of work, obviously, in cricket and baseball. And so there are two sports where I'd have a little bit of a process. Let's call it act. So before an at-bat or before a pitch or if you're about to pitch or, you know, if you're a batsman before you face your first delivery or, you know, maybe once every three or four balls, act as a simple, it's a very, very simple process. So it's assess the situation, commit to a plan, trust your skill set. So that's a really simple tool I use all the time because it just enables players to get, it's a vehicle to get them present. Does that make sense? Mm. It's not a magical equation. All it does, I know if I have to think through those three things, they're going to be much more aware of what's required of them and the task that they're about to engage with. If they don't have a process, their mind can just wander, you know? So it's kind of just a bringing them back into, you know? And then I suppose in the more of the fast moving sports, so rugby's a bit different now, so many stoppages. I think quite a few of our players use that, that tool. Um, it might just be around one key phrase on attack and D. So, you know, it, you know, it might be come up square. That might be something on, on D or um, see the whole picture might be something on attack, you know, like a player finds himself getting really narrow, you know, like I call it portrait versus landscape mode, <laughs> you know, really narrow versus really wide. And, you know, I know in football in particular, 
um, in the UK, there's a lot of talk about scanning and that. And, um, you know, I'm not, not really talking about that. I'm talking about more of a, a, a spatial awareness that is more of a, a mental thing rather than a gameplay thing. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to have them scan this whole brilliant pitch. I'm trying to have them be aware that there's more going on than what they see. And just to be open to that, I suppose, in the moment rather than to be predetermined and, and closed off. 100%, yeah. And that kind of portrait landscape, even just that mental switch to go to a landscape would relieve some anxiety in that. If Huge you, amount. Yeah, yeah. If you're thinking portrait, and I know exactly what you're yeah. saying, as you're saying it, you, you're too yeah. narrowed in. Yeah. Whereas if you just go landscape, you relax. Yeah. In so Andrew Huberman talks about it a lot, you know, who's a, I think one of the leading neuroscientists out of, I think he's out of Stanford and he talks a lot about like the relief of stress by going wide and doing scans of the horizon mm. um, versus being really narrow and focused. And I think there's a lot of, so when we talk about it's, it's ironic, I will tell our players to focus and they hear that as go narrow. Yeah. We shouldn't say that we should say stay wide and focus like, like mm. be aware. So the, sort of the, in rugby, the phrase that I've used is commit, to the system but adjust to the picture so you can probably understand that as a like we still want players deeply committed to the system but have the ability to adjust to the picture that's in front of them at any moment yeah it's interesting there when you say telling players to focus and you that that would just create anxiety as well or, or i think because the definition know, of focus is like yeah that's not that's not focus no yeah, that's that's just over overstimulated by something. Yeah, you should probably be giving them tools to become present because yeah. if you're if you're as a coach or telling a player to focus, you are identifying that they're not present in the moment. So in fact, what you actually want them to do is to be more yeah. present. Yeah, and like you'll hear a, a coach saying, you know, the team is up by say 15 in the second half and they end up losing or something like that, which happens all the time. It's like we lost focus what do you mean you know like i wouldn't say you lost focus you just got focused on the wrong things you know so all of a yeah. sudden now we got focused on scoreboard or we got focused on time rather than mm. tasks so and then that was detrimental impact on our performance which happens i think all the time like i think there's a stat that i had a look from super rugby last year like if you went up in the second half by 10 to 14 points in a super rugby game in new zealand that lead got reduced to three, like seven times out of 10. Because the team in front maybe got a little tighter and the team behind maybe got looser. And all of a sudden, the game's changed and the coach will come out afterwards. And not our coach, he's really quite good in the mental side. Like he really gets it. But I've heard coaches come in and say, we just need to be more focused. And I was like, that's the worst thing. Like what, more, more stressed? Because yeah. that's what people often associate focus with stress right and so no we just need to be more present and more aware and less distracted yeah absolutely and it's when you're mentioning those scenarios i know that the second you have a lead in a game and you look at the clock and think about running yeah. down a clock yeah. you tighten up you're yeah. you're dust you can't play yeah there's two things in a, I say in a rugby game there's two things that create pressure which is time and score so you take those out of it, then, so why, why isn't there pressure on at minute four? 
because time and score is not usually a factor. Why is there pressure at minute 78? Because time and score is now a factor. And time and score are what determine outcome. And so outcome pressure, we have to, like, we, we have to navigate through outcome pressure. Can't avoid it. I, you know, I hate, I, I hate the idea that you should just focus on the process and ignore the outcome. I just think it's totally unhelpful because it's not how we function. Like we should be, you know, outcome aware, but, you know, task focused, but we have to be aware of the outcome because sometimes the game is giving us clues about how we should behave in any certain moment. Like, you know, like if you're, if it's 21, 19 with 30 seconds left on the clock and you've got a line out and you just need to secure the line out, roll through a couple of phases and kick the ball out and win. That's not your behavior or process at minute 38 because why because the the outcome is determined that you behave in certain ways so you know i think sometimes we get so process focused we don't we become very poor assessors of what's required in a game because we need to make adjustments all the time yeah i like that and so is that how you would encourage players to be is outcome aware but process yeah that, yeah driven. Yeah, ta- or- yeah that's exactly the language i use so you've got to be outcome aware you've got to be score aware you've got to be time aware you know like i think because your decisions the once again going back to that statement for the game gives you clues so the game will tell you what you need to do if you're listening or watching mm-hmm. so when you're as a fan when you watch a game at minute 76 you know what your team needs to do to be able to win mm-hmm. They know that just can they do it but if you're so process driven like and over process focused then you don't pick up the clues and i know that probably sounds a little bit contrary to what so many people in my position teach but you know i've watched so many teams not recognize the clues or not recognize the shifts or not recognize that you know, like in baseball, for example, like you could have this plan and a process, like we're coming up against the Mariners. The Mariners are a really patient team. Um, you know, they don't swing at a lot of first pitches. Here's all the analytics. Um, you know, we can sort of pound the strike zone early, get ahead of hitters. That's our plan. First three hitters, bang, bang at first pitch. What are you going to do? Oh, well, the process said, no, 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 no. You need to stop. They've changed their approach. Can you recognize that? Does that make sense? Like, hundred percent. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I don't think we always have uh, mentally flexible athletes because, in the name of process, they've they've actually misread what's demanded of them. A hundred percent. And uh, yeah, there's so many ways that plays out. Like a a ten will be getting the feel of a game towards the second half, and we'll just start kicking more you know, kicking yeah. corners versus going to yeah. the hands. And it's not, you know, it's not that they're playing on the back foot, but they're just getting, you know, the scoreboard is going in their favor and they're going to kick a yeah. corner to put a little bit more pressure. They've on just, them. they've recognized the clues. Yeah. And they've picked up on them and said, listen, if we do this, you know, like, you know, we know that if a team is behind and you pin them in their own half and they try to play out of their own half, nine times out of 10, you're going to come up on top. Yeah, I think a big part of what would hold people back from going into that space 
is the fear of the scoreboard or being afraid of failing you know it, it's easy to just focus on the process and, mm-hmm. and block out score altogether but i suppose it takes more courage to go into that zone where you're like it's what the best tens do like like that example you know they're they're fully in tune with the score yeah. and they're playing in that space yeah well and i think i think we try to put process against outcome where i think or performance but i think they flow together so the evidence of a good process is good performance so if you say i'm committed to your process but you're not performing i'd say you got a really rubbish process so your pro- all your processes is a set of behaviors that you believe are critical for you to perform at your best that's all the processes so if we do a b and c this gives us the best opportunity to perform so if you keep on doing stuff and your performance isn't getting better, and I call it process apathy, like I find athletes get locked into a process, but it's just something they can hide behind because a process, you can always um, you can always project a process. So when do you measure the effectiveness of a process? Some athletes will say, listen, this is my process. I'm just committing it to like, till I have success. And you can't really argue with that because there's no inline for the evaluation of their process. And so I think we have to bring it forward like and say and challenge the athletes like, yes, you have a process. Yes, you're committed to it. Yes, you believe these behaviors are critical, but it's not translating to performance. So I would question whether you're working on the right things. Yeah. And how do you quantify it for players? So would you look at because say looking at like tackles per game or pass completion or these different things if you look solely at those as well you can get skewed and you know there can be an error there you know if you look at pass completion someone cannot pass and do one pass and then they have 100 percent passing or how how do you um determine or put markers in to see if a player is their process is working and they are getting better well, I think, I think, you know, collectively and individually, I think we can ask and we'll set a, a benchmark of when you are at your best, what are you doing? Yeah. So we know, I think they know that, like, mm. as far as like in preparation, what are you doing? Like, and I've often found with people that are really have performed well and they have a bit of a dip, it's normally not ever adding new things to their process it's Mm. returning and asking them whether the things that they've done in the past that have made them perform well they're still doing with the same level of engagement and intent as they did previously so you know like it's a difference between searching and adjusting right so like like experienced players will make adjustments to their processes because they understand the foundations are really really strong and they know what to do often inexperienced players will just like blow up the whole thing and start again (laughs) And they're searching, they're looking for something like little silver bullets along the way that can help them play well that week. Whereas your more experienced athletes understand like there are, when I'm at my best and when I have played at my best and then teams collectively, you know, so you have a look like a team, we have obviously a lot of respect for the Crusaders. When they're at their best, their set piece is dominant. They play a really good territory game and the defense is awesome. Like when we're at our best chiefs, we're playing ball. You know, like, and we're still doing the other stuff well. We've got a great set piece and got a pretty incredible forward pack. But if that, that's our foundations. For, so we know our identity is different from, say, the Crusaders, different from the Canes or the Blues or the Highlanders. And 
So I think we all understand what that those trademarks are and what they look like. And then it's making sure that we're doing what we've done when we were, or we did feel like we're at our best. And I reckon just human nature is to take the pedal foot off the pedal quite off and then just return back to that. Yeah. Um, and then with individual players, like for us, a team collective, but individual players, I think everyone knows like, being in the zone or the flow state or whatever you want to call it when you're doing your thing, you know, whatever yep. that is. And yep. it's having, it's having awareness of that, isn't it? And then understanding what has gotten in the way of me being mm. getting into that space. And then it's like, you like, you have your performers, like I think like Richie McCaw and like Sam Kane are quite, you know, obviously Richie and Sam are different players, but have a similar, like you'll never get a nine one week and a one the next week. No. It's always a seven or eight. And you just get mm -hmm. that week after week after week. And they're the, probably the players that don't get as much fanfare or might not get as much admiration because you're just used to them being consistently good. Um, but, you know, what I think separates them and going back to what you're saying, like when I think about a typical athlete's performance over a year, I reckon they have, I call it A, B and C game. So A game is zone, Right. And I reckon that's about 20% of your games, maybe. Um, B game is you're not quite right, but it's not awful. And I reckon that's about 70%. And I reckon there's about 10% of the games, your C game, you just don't want to be there. <laughs> and nothing's going right. And so what makes the great players, and I say this, and there's not many of them, is that they, even when they like have something like a B game, they know how to compete and get the best out of themselves that day. They don't have to be in the zone to play well. And this is where the consistency factor comes in is that they're able to take a day where a normal player would operate at about a five and they turn it into a seven by just competing and just, mm. just doing what they can. Or they might have a three day, but they turn it into a six and you go, oh, they weren't at their best, but they certainly didn't throw out a two or a three for us either. And so, you know, I think that comes with experience and self-awareness and understanding, I think acceptance that you're not going to be at your best every time you walk out onto a paddock. So you've got to have some things in place if you're not at your best, whether it's your body or, you know, simple things. You had a big argument with the missus, like the morning of the game, or, you know, you've got someone who's sick in your family, or you've got a niggling injury, or you're worried about all black selection. All of those things play in. And I think the really good players can navigate through those things and still perform. Yeah, 100%. Um, I remember playing Gaelic football growing up, different Irish sport. Mm -hmm. But uh, the coach said before as well, you know, if you're not having a bad game, you can still run around a lot and try and make yeah. tackles, you know, yeah. and, and just be, be an stuff. energy. Yeah. Yeah. And I know like I've, I've played quite a bit of golf and have worked with quite a few golfers and you know, like they will narrow it down to simply as where's the target? How do I get the ball in the hole when they're not feeling good? It's just a simple, yeah. really, you know, like little focus. Let's go. You know, where's my target? How do I get the ball in the hole? And that's about as complicated as my process is going to get today because yeah. I don't have it. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah it's an interesting one, eh? 100%. Yeah. And just thanks for your time. But one other one yeah. on there, on that sometimes like what will stop you from getting into that a 
is if you're in the B and you've had two or three game B games and you're like, all right, I'm doing well and I'm I'm seven out of ten, or but I want to be a nine out of ten, I want a ten, is forcing it and just having a conversation with a player recently was just talking a little bit about you know, them moving the ball, not trying to make line breaks every time. And I was just having a conversation around this and and they said, yeah, I used to play a lot of soccer growing up and my coach used to always tell me, let the ball do the work. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And that's kind of an interesting uh, paradox again of of how you get to that peak state, that A game. Yeah, and I, and I think it's just like unraveling that with players, right? Understanding why that's the case. So for some players, it will be an external factor like they want to get a contract and they're not going to get a contract passing the ball <coughs> in their eyes, yeah. in their eyes. So, you know, like there's always ego eh, involved with high performance mm. or any level of performance because it's the nature of the people involved to have a, you got to have a little bit of probably moxie about you. I know it's a strange term, but something about you where you, you got, you will do whatever it takes to get the job done. And there is an ego with that. Don't get me wrong, no matter who you are. And, you know, that's often what then drives sort of probably the dysfunctional behaviors on the field is that, you know, there's so much going on around, you know, and I, I talk to players, you find this, I talk to players and think, yeah, Arsene, do you think everybody watches you when you play? And they'll be like, yeah. You talk to coaches and fans, do you watch number 12 when they play? No, just watch the game. You know, like it might be a bit more direct at our level because you might have a line coach who's really specific around watching what they do on every play. And I know like Wayne Smith used to select players by going to trials and he wouldn't even watch the game. He'd just watch one individual. But for the most cases, like, you know, it's like anything we do in life, you walk through a mall, you think everyone's looking at you. No one's looking at you. (laughs) Like no one even cares. Yeah. You know, so there is definitely an ego, fear, all that stuff that's always riding around with people. Oh, 100% is so true. Two things on that. Um, yeah, I had a, a conversation with players well two or three months ago, and it was, I said to them, I was like, half the time, I'm the attack coach, I was like, half the time or a good part mm-hmm. of the time, I'm looking at the defense. Then I'm looking at off the ball. I'm looking at our positioning. I'm looking mm-hmm. at our space well across the field. I'm seldom looking at, I'm not always looking at the ball, you yeah, know, and yeah. they're like, oh yeah you know mind blown yeah they just think it's that the whole world is watching them play yeah and another good one on the ego thing what i love i heard a while back uh israel adesanya another kiwi but uh, he said i'm the shit but i ain't shit yeah and that i think kind of encapsulates what you're saying there but you need to have something about you but but to be able to under like suppress that as well or to not be hung up on it yeah i mean i think it's that whole thing of that inner belief and inner confidence versus arrogance like i think when you have true inner belief no one needs to know how good you are when you have arrogance you feel like everybody needs to know how good you are and so you know like israel is such a, a lightning rod here in new zealand because we suffer from the very thing that he's confronting which is our lack of belief in ourselves which translates into the tall poppy syndrome and the you can't be different you have to you know just put your head down work hard and don't stick out you know that's the the kiwi aussie way um probably the yeah probably the yeah probably definitely the irish way as well and 
I think it's probably a trait of some of our, you know, definitely not North American trait, um, but <laughs> probably the trait of some of the Anglo-Saxon, you know, countries has been around that. And so, you know, when Israel, like he did this amazing um, speech at one of our Halberg Awards, which is our biggest sporting awards of the year. And he just sort of said, when I shine, you all shine. And it was like this confronting moment for the public because, you know, this white, mostly white little nation who has been, and now you've got this African Kiwi who just behaves differently, who has utter belief, who loves hip hop, who's just himself. And I think it's brilliant because it confronts all our prejudices about what a high performing Kiwi should look like. And, you know, there's probably things that as a Kiwi, I go, that probably doesn't always capture our identity. But I love the fact that he's, you know, like the best one for me, I don't know if you've ever seen interviews with Stephen Adams. No. He plays for the Oklahoma Thunder. He's a oh, Kiwi. Go have a look. Yeah. Probably I, the most yeah. hilarious things you'll ever see because he is so Kiwi and just himself. And it's hilarious. And, you know, so you've got these figures that are awesome, just challenging our stereotypes. So I think really really healthy and at the same time not denying the fact we'll probably always be a bit of a conservative sort of you know keep to yourself don't show off they were the messages that i had growing up i still think that'll be part of our culture and i think that's not a bad thing there's some good aspects to that yeah it's funny just on that uh, the exact same thing happened in ireland when mcgregor was rising and so (laughs) i when he got the money after that he changed for sure and people can say what they want about him now but when he was on his way up there was a classist thing as well because he was from a very working class background yeah and yeah i loved him was he from a traveling family not quite no not quite but 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 he was uh no but but uh, because fury is from that i like tyson fury Fury is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. uh, an actual gypsy and traveler and um yeah but mcgregor is not but just very working class and i remember when he was rising up i loved him because he had something that no one else had and he he had that confidence and belief and i could see the way he talked he believed Mm. fully in what he was saying whereas and i loved it and i was endeared to it and then i remember hearing other friends and older people especially being like oh that dickhead that whatever he just talks too much i hate the way he talks i hate the way he's always talking just just get in the ring and get on with it you know and that like you're saying and he everyone in our I would say 80% of Irish people disliked him, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And I went to the States in 2016. Every single person I talked to, oh, you're Irish, McGregor. What a legend. I love him. He's incredible. You know that mm-hmm. they love somebody who's confident in themselves. And maybe that's the difference, like, is where these guys get off track is confidence is that I have utter belief in my ability and how great I could be. Arrogance is I need you to acknowledge that. That's where, he, yeah. I think you after, know. after that, when he won the two belts and he got the money, yeah. then that that's that I think that change happened. Yeah, and I mean I look at it from like I was, you know, in baseball for a lot of years and you had, you know, you had um someone like Derek Jeter, um, who just treated everyone beautifully. Like there wasn't anyone who had a bad word about Derek Jeter in the way like, but highly confident, but would never ever be accused of arrogance because I think I don't know what I'm trying to say is I think that the the gap between uh, confidence and arrogance is entitlement. Like that's where, to me, that's where the bridge you walk over that bridge called entitlement, and now you've gone from being confident and having self belief into arrogance and demanding. 
And the entitlement is that I need everybody to acknowledge the greatness that I see about myself. And, you know, like that to me is where it gets messy for people. 100%. Um, that's uh, brilliantly put there. Um, well, hey, Aaron, thanks so much for your time. Great hey, mate, no worries. It. Yeah, and thanks for reaching out. It's been excellent. Oh, cheers. And uh, you people can find your Twitter, LinkedIn. Twitter, that's, yeah. that's where I see a lot yeah, of Yeah, Twitter, LinkedIn. Yeah, I just sort of I find something interesting or if I think about something interesting, then I just share it. Like I don't really have a strategy. You know, someone asked me the other day, what's your social me uh, media person? What do they do? I was like, one, it's me. And two, if I think it's interesting, I'll post it. So I might have weeks without posting anything. And then I might post a whole bunch of stuff in three days because I've got something that I find interesting. So, you know, my philosophy is that, you know, the more you share, the more it forces you to grow. And, you know, I think, you know, people have asked, are you worried about, you know, your IP being out there? And I'm like, nah, nah, no, not at all. Um, one, it's probably not mine. <laughs> like we're all the, it's all, it's like a rainbow now eh, of information throughout the years. Yeah, we, we all are. get stuff off each other. And then secondly, it's one thing to know it, but I don't think you could execute it. So, you know, like there's no danger. I mean, it was, I think it was Padraig um, Harrington. He had a Bob Rotella book uh, called The Inner Game of Golf or something like that. And it wasn't The Inner Game. It was like one of the Rotella books. And he gave it away to like five of his mates on tour and Rotella said to Padraig, he said, are you worried about them having this information? He goes, no, they won't know how to apply it like I can. Yeah. So I think that's the key. Like, yes, you can give away information, but the magic is in the application. And that takes experience and skill. But if it can help people begin to think about those things, and hopefully that's helpful. 100%, yeah, I love that. And another one I heard before, which is so true, is that nobody can be better at you, at being you than you. Yeah, 100%. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I can give you a whole framework for a program that I might develop and run, but you've still got to execute it. And that requires, that's like developing the programs 20%, executing it's 80%. Yeah. So I'm not too worried. 100%. We'll keep up the yeah. great work. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Cheers for listening in today. Hope you picked up some things. I certainly did listening to Aaron chatting with him. When I edit these podcasts before putting them out, obviously, I make notes of timings of clips that I can share on my Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, which are all at Offfield Rugby. And going through this chat, genuinely, I was filling the page. There are so many brilliant insights. I'd write one down and then 30 seconds later, I'd be writing the next time and the next time and it just kept going. So anyway, I learned lots, hope you did too. Please be sure to send this pod on to some friends now and subscribe wherever you're listening. Those two things really help the pod, helps us continue to get great guests on and get these podcasts out to you. If you want to get in touch with me, you can do so through my website, which is offfieldrugby.com. And thank you so much to all of you who've been leaving five-star reviews on Amazon for the book on how you become a pro rugby player. Really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Cheers.